morning. Um, I'm glad you're here. You know, there's a lot of places that you could be this morning. You know, we live in Florida. There's, there's a beach or a ball game or a bed that could be calling you right now, but you're here, and there's no place better that you could be. There is no place that I'd rather be, because we're gathered here to know and praise the God of the universe. Before we get to this message, it's important to know who our God is. Our God is a God who creates and who covenants. He created everything you see and everything you don't see. There is nothing that your eyes behold that he did not create. There is nothing that exists outside of his creative power. He makes covenants or agreements with his people. When he covenants with his people, he promises to make them his own, to save them, to keep them. When he created the world, he created it good. And it perfectly glorified Him and reflected Him. But we sinned. And our sin and our rebellion against Him angers God. But He, in His grace, promised to recreate it. And promised to perfect it and keep it forever. The same God who created called the people out of paganism. And made covenants of them, promising offspring and a homeland. Gave them laws and gave them rulers. But these were imperfect. These were a shadow of things to come. A shadow of a new and better covenant. That he would make and keep himself by his very blood as God made flesh. So we approach looking at the cross. This pagan torture The crucifixion that we talk about is not just that. It's not just something that happened in the ancient time to to wicked people. But we look at one crucifixion. And the weight of everything that came before that completed in one sacrificial act. And it became the beginning of a new beginning. At the cross, we see new creation and new covenant. The prophet Isaiah says, chapter 53 Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. You see these these promises for the one who the Lord wills to crush. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the prophet Isaiah, 700 years for what we're going to read this morning, down to the detail. It was the Father's plan all along that the Son should make a new covenant and a new creation through the final sacrifice for sin. That final sacrifice is His blood on the cross, intercessing for transgressors, being counted among them, being counted among us, becoming sin for Him who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He was crucified to set right what was wrong, 
The book of Hebrews, the entire purpose of the book is to show us how Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's revelation. How everything that came before is a shadow of the heavenly realities of the imperishable things. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, starting in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When a king sits down, it means that it is finished. When he made that final sacrifice, he sat down. And he is sitting down because his work on earth is finished, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. There will be a time when all of his enemies are finally put to rest, where he will stand up again and retake his new creation. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One offering for all. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This is the moment that we're looking at this morning. All of redemptive history coming to this moment. Everything that was required for mankind to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. In this moment, through one man, the God-man. So do not take this lightly. This is not just some story about something that happened a long time ago. This is not just a recounting of one crucifixion of many thousands that happened during the Roman Empire. But this is one on which the fate of all humanity rests. Because up until this point, the cross was a symbol of weakness and of humiliation. But now it is a symbol of His kingdom. The power of our God over sin and death and the worst that man has to offer. Let's look at our text. John chapter 19. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription on the cross. It was read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple who, who loved him standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, 
said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So he put a sponge full of sour wine on a, on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. God of heaven, maker of all things, Lord of all creation, redeemer, helper, guide, protector. We praise you for your plan. That through all of history, before history, you knew us. You knew our sin. And you sent your son to die for us. That we might be redeemed and reconciled. That you might receive glory on top of glory. That all of creation, everything you have made, will recognize you for who you are. Lord, what an honor it is to be called according to your name and to be tasked as your ambassadors to proclaim the excellencies of your work. Lord, forgive us when our gospel is too small. Forgive us when we get so caught up in physical details that we miss the cosmic reality of how you are creating all things new and that through Jesus Christ, your kingdom is on display, and one day we will see it face to face. This is an amazing gospel. And Lord, I pray that as we walk through John's text this morning, and the details that he has chosen to give us, that we would be challenged and we would be encouraged at what you have revealed to us through your Spirit and your Word, and that the crucifixion of Jesus is not something that we take lightly not something that we think of simply, but as an event that changes everything. For those of us who put our faith and trust in Him, there's nothing we would rather stand on, nothing else we can hold on to. For those here this morning who do not know you, there is no other hope. Lord, I pray that your spirit goes before me, that it is only through the power of your spirit that we can hear, that we can understand, that we can apply your word to our hearts and our actions. And I pray for the fruit of our labors this morning and, and, and praise you for what you have already done. And we praise you for what you will continue to do because you are a good and loving God who is merciful towards sinners like us. Thank you for the blood of Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. So beginning in verse 17, we pick up where we left off last week. This is, a, this is a quick transition. There's no due process here. It's he's sitting on the judgment seat. He, the, the, the judgment is pronounced by, by Pilate, hands him over to the Jews. Let's get him out to get crucified as quickly as possible. Still early in the day. It's been several weeks for us going through his time uh, with the disciples in the upper room. But in a matter of hours, he's on his way to the cross after washing their feet. A lot has happened since then. And these Jews have wasted no time. They're trying to move, they're trying to grease the wheels and get this through the Roman judicial process as quickly as they can. And that's where we find ourselves now. And so they took Jesus. So they being the Jews, but, but also understanding, it's important to understand 
the, the Roman process here. So the Jews themselves were, were, were pushing and urging Pilate. But this is how crucifixion happened within the Roman Empire. When they say they, every person crucified was surrounded by four soldiers. Now, these soldiers, we're going to talk about the, the four more later, uh, but they had a job of bringing them through the city. And they didn't take the most direct route. They made the person carry their cross, and they made a roundabout route to where they were being crucified so that everyone could see. This became a spectacle. I mean, it's not very often this guy who's just been filleted within an inch of his life is paraded in front of your front door, carrying these wooden logs on his shoulders. And you would come out to see what was going on. There's another reason for this as well. Because the Romans did have their own sense of justice. So there would be a placard that would be carried out in front of them. We'll get to that in a moment too. It's why Pilate wrote on this. A few pieces of boards that were whitewashed, and the charges against the criminal would be written on that board. And so the soldiers would go before the accused carrying this sign. And if anyone, any witness, could give um, uh, testimony for them against the charges, there was still opportunity for the sentence to be revoked. And so they would parade them through the city to give a show of fear, but also one last-ditch effort if there's anyone out there who could provide testimony for the innocence of the accused. But what is most important about his crucifixion? What does John want us to know? Because John brings out some details that the other gospel writers don't. So I want to look at the first of those here. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross. What John is saying here is that he alone accomplished what was needed. Now, we know, if we've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Simon the Cyrene helped him. Now, this, this is a, a long walk. And so, certainly, we don't disagree with, with the other gospel writers. This is a complete narrative. But John, as always, is more concerned with the theological significance here. Whether si no matter how long Simon actually physically picked it up, Jesus carried it. What was needed to be carried... His cross was not just those two pieces of wood. His cross was the sin, the wrath of God, full judgment upon those who hate him. His cross was the ultimate burden that he is the only one in history who could ever bear. His cross he bore by himself. And so we should read the rest of this story with that in mind. Don't just think of Jesus' cross as those two pieces of wood. His cross is the cup that the Father gave him. The sin that we rightfully deserve, that he took in our place to die for us. That is the, his ultimate cross, but this is also a great example for the Christian life. Because he is an example of self-denial, of selflessness, and self-sacrifice with zero concern for himself and his own physical comfort. How much does our physical comfort play into our decision-making? But he did this so that we might be reconciled to God and our lives might be marked like his, living to him, dying to sin. And he tells us to take up our cross and follow him. How could we not? Because too often we think about his cross as just those two pieces of wood. But the cross that he bore by himself is our sin because no one else could bear it. 
Mark says this in chapter 8. You can turn to Mark 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Anyone. I want to stop there for a moment. Because some people think this is optional. Well, I can follow Jesus and still be how, who I want to be. I can follow Jesus and do everything I did before. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. Take up your cross. This does not mean what our culture has made it to mean. It's my cross to bear that I have to work in an office that I, I don't like. Or it's my cross to bear that I have bunions on my feet or whatever it is. Our cross is to die to our sin, the humiliation that Christ suffered on our behalf. To be separate from the world, to be holy unto him. To deny what our flesh wants, to live for him. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Our taking up our cross is losing our very lives, losing what we hold on to most dearly. Everything that defines us apart from Christ. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. That is salvation. Not trying to do more on your own strength, but to die to yourself and rest in his strength. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is not a light thing that Jesus did. It's not a light thing that Jesus requires of us. And we live in a culture where the cross is popular. And Christian platitudes are stuck on bumper stickers and cheap heretical books that are sold in Christian bookstores. Jesus says, die to yourself. If you will, are not willing to follow me, take up your cross and die to everything else that you hold dear for my sake. You're not worthy of me. You will lose your life if you try to save it. And that is only possible because he went before us bearing his cross. And he took it to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. We know Calvary, which is the Latin version of this. So this, I just think this is interesting. This is one of those things that a lot of people have spent time on. What is the, the place of the skull? Where is it? Why is it called the place of the skull? The word in Greek is just cranium, like cranium. It, it, it literally means just a head without hair. Not this head, but like a, a head without hair. It, it just means it's a, it, it's a figure of speech. So people, a lot of people are trying to read into the, the, the place of the skull, and it, it's a simple Greek term. Um, just thought I'd throw that out there in case you were wondering. There, on that place, they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Notice here, he said, and there they crucified him. Where is all the mention of his torment and his, and his torture? Where is all the pity for his physical pain? There isn't any. You know, I was struck this week, a lot of times, uh, a lot of times, Every time I read scripture, I, I realize how challenged I need to be and how much deprogramming has to happen for me. Because none of the gospel writers address Jesus' pain on the cross. None of them address, oh, poor him. There were thousands of people crucified. Crucifixion was horrible, yes. 
It was so painful, they even had to invent a new word. Excruciating, out of the cross, out of crucifixion. That's where the word came from. It's a painful death, sure, but many were crucified. And if we only focus on his human pain, we miss the point. So John doesn't even address it. He says he's crucified there and moves right on to another detail. He's crucified with two others. Isaiah, in that passage we read just a moment ago, he is numbered with the transgressors. He must be set in between two sinners, crucified as a sinner, taking on sin himself, numbered with the transgressors, so that we get the point. You see these other two wicked people here? There's a righteous one in the middle, but he's dying just like them. He was crucified to bear sin alone. So as I walk through my outline, you're going to see that he was crucified too. There's going to be a complete thought here for each one of those. The first one is he was crucified to bear sin. And he was crucified to bear sin alone. He was crucified as the one who become cursed, becoming a curse for us. He must die as sin. He will not die as a sinner. He's not a sinner, but he must die as sin, taking on sin on himself for the sake of sinners. Look around the room. Every one of you is a sinner. You do not sit next to one person who has any righteousness on their own. Everyone you see is a sinner. But only one can bear sin. This is why this is so important. This is why John brings these images to mind. So that's the first. Next, verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription on the cross. This is what we were talking about earlier. There's a placard to show you what this person was charged with. Everyone crucified would have their sentence placed above their head. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. What a sentence. This is his only accusation. This is what he is dying for. King of the Jews. Usually it would say, Murderer, thief, robber. But it says Jesus, King of the Jews. And John makes the most of this inscription. Because John's continuing this this king theme. We've looked at this the past few weeks, how Jesus stands before Pilate. John's the only one who mentions that Jesus declares his kingdom before Pilate. John places special emphasis on how bent out of shape the chief priests get because he said he's king. Are you the king of the Jews? And so this placard was placed above his head. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Now this is an important detail. It was near the city. It was not in the city. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And according to the law, sin offerings could not be sacrificed within the city. Sin offerings must go outside of the city. So even in his death, he did not break the law. The law of Moses required that outside of the city, the blood of defiled animals in representation of the sin of the, of, of the people, their atonement must be shed on the ground outside of the city of God's people. And so this sacrifice, defiled blood for God's people, must be shed outside of the city. And this placard, this charge, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, was written in three languages. John brings in this detail. It's very important. We don't understand this 
in our culture, but I want to take some time, just explain it quickly. First, Aramaic. From what we understand, Jesus and the Jews, the Aramaic was the, the conversational language. Very closely related to Hebrew. Hebrew at this point would really be relegated to uh, synagogues, to, to teachings, to, to, to formal reading of Scripture. But the everyday language was Aramaic. So first and foremost, at the top, this is written in the language of the Jews. They saw it in their own language. So it was in the language of the local people. It was written in Aramaic and in Latin. Latin was the official language of Rome. This is what Roman did all their business in. Roman, uh, when, when the Romans would put out announcements, everything official was done in Latin. But it was also in Greek. If you understand history, you'll know that Alexander the Great, when he conquered, his, one of his great goals was to make everyone Greek speakers. It took about 200 years, but most of the world, the, the language of the people, the, the common language was Greek. And so this sign is in three languages. The language of the people of God, the language of the nation in power, and the language of the nations. This is a message to everyone. This is to be proclaimed to everyone. Everyone who saw this would see those words. There is no one who saw this claim above his head who did not understand it. In this time, the Roman Empire who were united by a common language and brought many nations together. God is using the wickedest thing that they could try to pour out on him to proclaim this is the king. This is the king above the head of Jesus. This is a message to the whole world. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews but rather, this man said, I am, the, I am the king of the Jews. The chief priests are the instigators the whole way through this. Not only are they, are they trying to dictate the terms of his... Remember last week, they said, we can't crucify anyone, but you can. So they, can, they want to determine how he's killed, that he's killed, and they want to edit what his charges are. But Pilate, this answer is amazing. Pilate, for as manipulated as he's been by the Jews throughout this whole exchange, he finally stands up with some backbone and says, what I have written, I have written. And it's amazing how God providentially uses Pilate here. This pagan who feared the Jews more than he fears God, who finally gives in to their demands, who goes through this whole trial illegally, he doesn't know why. He orders this, this title to be written, and he can't pull back his hand. I don't know why I am compelled to have this on the sign, but I have to. God uses this pagan governor to proclaim his kingship to the nations. This is meant as a jab to those Jews who've been a thorn in his side by Pilate, but it is used by God to declare his king. King, this theme of king we've talked about for the last couple weeks, but now it comes to a head. Because we have to consider, this does not look very kingly. You've just been beaten to within an inch of your life. There's no hope for you to escape from this. You don't look like anyone that should be feared. 
Yet his kingdom is not of this world, and his kingdom is not what we would expect. When the wise men came to Mary and Joseph, they were looking for a king. When the angel Gabriel, in Luke chapter 1, goes before Mary, this is the words that he prophesies over Mary. Luke uh, 1, 32 and 33. He will be a great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a funny predicament for a king to be in. But as we read earlier, this is a different type of king, because in order for his kingdom to come in, he must defeat the greatest enemy. He must have a people, and he must be the one to redeem them. This is a different type of kingdom. Later on in Luke, when Jesus pulls his disciples aside on the road to Emmaus, he he reveals himself to them. He tells them that everything written about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything. In the law, first five books, Genesis 49, when Jacob is giving the promises to his sons, Judah, who is no prize by, by, by any standard, pulls Judah aside. He said, from the house of Judah, the scepter shall never be removed. There was a kingship that was to be in the house of Judah from the very early days of the patriarchy. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms is the order of the Hebrew Bible, the the Tanakh. Within the prophets, we see in many, many places. But in Zechariah and Malachi, there will be a king, and his kingdom will rule over his people forever. He will come from the house of Israel. He will redeem them. He He will bring them back from the nations, and he will rule them in justice and equity. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The Psalms, starting beginning with the book of Psalms and in, in, in the writings, there are many more prophecies, just a couple to bring up. Psalm 2, God says, I will put my king on my holy hill, my son, my beloved, my begotten. Psalm 110 tells us of a king, my Lord saying to my Lord, a king saying to a king, I will Make your enemies your footstool. I will put them all under you. You will rule with an iron hand and you will put all of your enemies to death. All of the scriptures are looking forward to his kingship. He was crucified to reveal his kingdom. And it did not look like it at the time, but this must happen. We can't forget the prophecy in Isaiah that everything was looking forward to this. He was crucified to reveal his kingdom. Next, now we've got the soldiers and this interesting detail here. So when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it uh, to see whose it shall be. Now here's where those four soldiers come back again. And this is interesting uh, for us to know. So a Hebrew man would have had five pieces of clothing. He would have had a cloak, a belt, sandals, uh, and some kind of headdress or headgear so that Vidal Sassoon, Jesus, that they, they like to paint in books, it's not true. He also would have had a tunic. I'm glad you're still laughing at that, Angie. Thank you. Um, the tunic was worn closest to the body. That was, that was the undergarment. That was the, the softest of the material, and it was the most expensive. 
They took all five pieces of his clothing. The other part of the humiliation was they stripped him naked. There's none of this modest loincloth stuff that we see in, in paintings. This was full and complete humiliation. But we have four soldiers and five garments. So they easily divide up the four, but the most valuable one, they cast lots. They roll some dice to see who gets this. And why does John bring that up? To fulfill the prophecy. Both. They divided his garments and they cast lots. Scripture is fulfilled down to every detail in Christ. This was done to fulfill the Scripture. There is no detail left unturned here. Christ was crucified to fulfill the Scriptures. Why do we read the Old Testament? Why, do we, why are we still bothered with this archaic revelation from God as, as many people and popular Christians will tell us these days? Because every bit of it proclaims the coming King. Every bit of it anticipates God's new covenant and God's new creation. Every bit of it. When we sit in our Bible study every Wednesday night, we always ask the question, how does this point to or teach us about Christ? He died, crucified, to fulfill the Scriptures. And we would need a month's worth of, worth of sermons at least for us to go through all of the prophecies just in this passage. So I'm just going to stick to the obvious ones because you guys have things to do for the next month. I don't know if I do, but I won't, I won't do that to you. So this was to fulfill the Scriptures which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast, lot, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. This is beautiful. Because of all the names that are thrown around here, you get the names of these steadfast women. When all the men run, John names them. I'm sure to give them credit for their faithfulness. And this is a beautiful picture of the importance that these women played in the ministry of Jesus and how important they were to him. And oh, the love of a faithful woman standing before, not fearing their own safety, not hiding their eyes from, from, from the spectacle, but they were standing by the cross. Even in his final moments, they did not leave him. And then there's an interesting detail that comes up in 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Now, kids, I do not recommend you call your mother woman. Um, this, was, this was more common in this, in, in this culture. This is not a disrespectful term. This is exactly what he said in chapter 2 when he's at the wedding of, uh, wedding of Cana. Woman, what would you have me to do? But he's taking the emphasis off of him being her son and speaking to her as her king. Woman, behold your son. This is powerful. Because Jesus was also crucified to do something amazing. But in that, in his final moment on the cross, he's still concerned for his mother. He's still not thinking of himself. He's thinking of her. And then he speaks to his beloved disciple, the only one of the disciples who's mentioned at the cross. 
And he gives the reverse of this commandment. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Jesus committed his, his own mother to his beloved disciple. Why not his brothers or sisters? He still had brothers and sisters who were alive. They were not believers. He knew that his mother was in the better hands with a spiritual brother than biological brothers. So Jesus creates this amazing new precedent in this new creation, in this new covenant, that he challenges biology. And so he's, he's taking this, this common idea that who my brothers and sisters are, are depends on, on, on my DNA. No, family depends on your relationship to him. If you are loved and devoted to him, you are mother, sister, brother. He opens this up in Mark chapter 3. If you look at Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called, and a crowd was sitting around them. And they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So with us, in Christ, we are brother, sister, father, mother, in a truer sense than blood DNA ever can be. And this is an encouragement to those of you and those of us whose families are messed up. This is an encouragement if your family are not believers. Because Christ was crucified to create new family in Him that would never be separated. To be defined by Him. And if you struggle with family, and if just the thought of family hurts, because your family has been filled with pain and disappointment, the cross of Christ gives us a new family. Through Him, we have a family in Him. And He started with the example of His own mother. I am doing this, and, I, and as my example, my mother will be the first to experience this new family. He was crucified to adopt us into a family that is created in Him. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home to exemplify this. Next, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, more on all is finished in just a moment. So hold that thought. He said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. He's quoting from Psalm 69. What does Psalm 69 say in context? Verse 19 to 21 is going to be up on the screen. Crying out to God, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have, been, have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I look for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus is cognizant of it all. Look at John's language here. And Jesus, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scriptures. Even in His moments on the cross, He is thinking in terms of prophetic Scripture. He must fulfill it all. 
And this informs us how we view the rest of these texts. I thirst. The process of crucifixion would have taken every ounce of strength and energy and moisture out of his body. But there's also something here that a Hebrew theme of sin is always attached to dryness. Sin is always symbolic with being withered and being without life. The cross that he bore, the weight that he bore, took all of the water out of him. He thirsts. John always emphasizes deity, but here he brings in his humanity, which is still symbolic. Sin has sucked every ounce out of his body. Living, he is living water, and he has been poured, being poured out. The thirsting we saw already in Psalm 22, but he also promises us that we who trust in him will never thirst again. Chapter 4, he tells the woman of Samaria, at the well, starting in verse 13. He said, Everyone who drinks of this water, the water in the well, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. He went thirsty so that we might have the wellspring of water that flows on into eternity. And so to fulfill it, they gave him sour wine, and so they took a sponge, and they put it on a hyssop branch. Now this word is, is interesting, or this, this plant here. It's used several times in Scripture. So he drank this sour wine, this, this bitter cup, and took it on a hyssop branch, a hyssop sponge. But where else is this used? Look at Exodus 12. This should bring to mind. Exodus 12, what's going on in Exodus 12? Anybody know? Moses, if you've Bubba's always got the answer for that one. A little bit more specific, in the Exodus, the, the, the final plague on Pharaoh, the protection of God's people, what is the protection? Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, the blood of the spotless lambs, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts, and that blood is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door until morning. What was their protection? What was their, their, their blood of covering? A hyssop sponge covered in blood. Again, Psalm 51, this, this great psalm where David pours out his heart after sinning against God with Bathsheba. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Jesus drinks sour wine, but to us, it becomes a blood of covering, and it becomes a washing. God uses what was so tormenting to Jesus at the time. That's something that is atoning and covering and washing for us. And he drank just enough of it so that he could say these final words. It is finished. Now in the Greek, this is one word. And it has a wide range of meaning. This could mean to end, to accomplish, to finish, to complete, to pay in full. All of those should be considered here. The last words recorded by John our words of victory, completing his work. It is finished. Now we know in a small part, we all know what it's like to finish a project, to graduate from a class, to pay off a debt, to finish a job, and the satisfaction that happens when you finish something. It is finished, and you stand back and look at your work. 
But what about standing back and what has been finished and what history has been looking forward to up until this point? It is finished. What is finished? All of it. Everything that happened, what we're talking about here, everything that happened from here to here, it is finished. Everything that happens in here to here, looking back to what is finished. Thank you, Josh. We were, we were hanging out last night, and he gave this illustration. I was like, man, i got to use that. So if you listen to the recording later, I'm holding up a Bible. The big side of the Bible, all the Old Testament, what's fulfilled. Let's look at what is finished here. All of it. The promises of God, finished. The requirements of the law, finished. Fulfillment of prophecy, finished. Perfect obedience unto death, finished. The old covenant and its administrations, finished. His human works, finished. The final sacrifice, finished. The wrath of God, satisfied, finished. Justice of God, completed, finished. The full atonement of sins, finished. The redemption of his own, finished. The headship of Adam over the people of God, finished. The old age, finished. And final victory over the final enemy, finished. Victory on the cross because he rose again. And all this will be completed when he returns in glory. It is finished. Amen. Nothing more needs to be done for salvation. Nothing more needs to be done for reconciliation or new creation. Except to put your faith in the one who finished it all. So if anyone tells you you must do anything else other than to put your faith in what Christ has done, they are lying. Either Jesus is lying or they are. Jesus says, it is finished. I believe him. And my belief and my trust is in him as yours should be. And this final detail here. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. These are voluntary terms. All along, no one forced him to do this. His life was not taken from him. He offered it up. John 10, 17, a couple chapters back, when he's teaching them about the good shepherd, here's what he says. For this reason the Father loves me. How is the Father's love exemplified in the Son? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He didn't just die. He has the power to raise it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Down to the very end, he is in full control. Do not pity Jesus on the cross. Pity your own sin. This is victory language. It is finished. It is finished, but it is not the end. This is just the beginning of new creation. This is just the beginning of the new covenant. He is making all things new, and he begins with his people. So, to conclude this morning, I just want to reemphasize what we talked about already. Christ was crucified to begin the new creation. Christ was crucified to reconcile all things. And let's walk through these one at a time. Christ was crucified to bear the weight of sin himself, becoming sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ was crucified to declare his eternal kingdom to the nations. Christ was crucified so that Scripture may be fulfilled, even though it seems like evil is prospering when the soldiers are dividing up his garments. It is still to fulfill Scripture. Christ was crucified to create new family. 
to create new identity, new community, new life in him. There is newness in Christ. And Christ was crucified to complete in victory everything that is required for new creation and this inauguration of a new covenant. So just, if you are in Christ, if you are indeed in Christ, you are a new creation in Him under an unbreakable, eternal covenant in His blood that was finished on the cross. Rejoice if you are in Christ. Because our Savior freely gave Himself up for you. It is finished. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, how can we begin to understand what our Savior has done for us? How can we begin to understand what His cross was? How can we begin to understand what His kingdom is? How can we begin to understand how through Your Scriptures all are fulfilled, all the promises of God in Him? How can we even begin to understand what family looks like through you? How can we even understand and begin that everything required for our salvation is finished? We praise you that you've revealed this to us. We praise you that you've called us according to his name. We praise you that you sent your son for us. We praise you that you did everything for us that we might have life and life everlasting. Lord, we praise you for the work of new creation, bringing dead things to life, redeeming your lost sheep. And I pray that you continue to use us as heralds, as ambassadors, to declare our King and his work that is finished and all that is required. It's repentance and belief, turning from the world taking up your cross, denying yourself, and trusting in his finished work so that you receive all the glory and all the praise and we cannot boast in ourselves. We praise you for this. And we as a people, let us walk out of this room singing and rejoicing. It is finished. Amen.